Hi, this is Deep Hargadon, and welcome to Connected Educator Month. Uh, it is the first day, the kickoff day of this amazing set of activities, thanks to the Department of Education and especially Karen Cater for pushing and promoting this event. Our session today is Knocking on the Door, Connected Education and New Technologies, and we have some great guests here, Drew Davidson, Chris Deedy, Cable Green, and John Katzman. And Chris and Cable, I've visited with you both before, but this is new for me with Drew and John, and I'm delighted to have you all here. If you are not already subscribed to the Connected Educator mailing list, we recommend that you do so. Uh, after the first three days of sort of kickoff activities, there's a month-long set of um, uh, forum and other smaller activities, and then a big close at the end. And I'm also running a Learning 2.0 virtual conference the week of the 20th to the 24th. And all of that information is up at ConnectedEducatorMonth.org. Uh, anyway, lots of fun. And if you're a tweeter, the hashtag is CE12. So um, what I would like to do, if I can, uh, panelists, is to have each of you uh, take 30 seconds to introduce yourselves and in the process of that, answer the following question. Uh, and the question is, is there an easy way to categorize or characterize right now the interplay of technology, pedagogy, and cultural expectations for teaching and learning? So a quick introduction for each of you. Let's start, if we can, with Drew. And then, is there an easy way to characterize this moment in time with technology and education? There I am. Uh, thanks, Steve. Uh, quick little intro. Uh, my name is Drew Davidson. I'm at the uh, Entertainment Technology Center at Carnegie Mellon University. And we try to focus on how to use sort of entertainment technologies writ large. So like video games, animation, short films, transmedia, storytelling, uh, location-based installations, uh, and apply that across a variety of fields. So we're curious about using it for education and learning, uh, medical and health, uh, training, and of course just entertainment. <laughs> uh, as to an interesting time, I would say yes, just because games, while they've been a part of our culture for millennia, it's the digital distribution combined with the way digital video games are able to uh, infiltrate our lives in some ways are providing some unique opportunities in terms of interactivity and engagement, I'd say. Terrific. Chris, how about you? I'm Chris Deedy. I teach leadership technology and policy at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I was one of 15 people on the technical working group for the National Educational Technology Plan in 2010. And that's actually where the term connected education came from. I and a couple other people were the lead authors on the section of the plan that deals with teaching. I think this is a really interesting time because professional development can take one of two different directions. We can help teachers to improve their effectiveness within the current system of schooling, which unfortunately has a pretty mixed record of effectiveness and also is becoming financially infeasible. Or we can use professional development to help teachers transform to a new 21st century model of education. 
And technology can be used to do either one of those two. So it's really a major cultural choice that we need to think about. Chris, I want to drill down for just two seconds there because you said something that interested me. You said uh, we could use PD to transform to a new model of education. Is there a degree to which these crowdsourced activities are actually shifting who does PD or sort of who will do the transforming? Are we at a moment where we're likely to see educators taking more of a role in that regard? Well, I certainly hope that we will see educators taking more of a role because no system of education, old or new, can succeed without teaching at the heart of it. And teachers need to feel a sense of ownership in what they're doing, old or new. I think the power of crowdsourcing and a lot of these newer technologies that are part of Connected Education Month is that teachers teach as they're taught. And so if we want teachers to use social media, to use newer technologies, teachers themselves have to be using those technologies for their own learning and their own professional interactions. Terrific. Cable? Really delighted to have you here. I think you fall into a, a, a uniquely interesting category. Would you introduce yourself and then maybe address sort of for this particular moment in time? Yeah, thanks, Steve, and uh, thanks again for the invite. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Cable Green. I'm the director of global learning at Creative Commons. If you're not familiar with Creative Commons, we're a nonprofit organization that offers free legal copyright licenses consistent with the rules of copyright. And really what we do is we make it easy for people to share uh, with anybody in the world and to build on the work of others. So the, the moment in time uh, that I tend to think about and spend most of my time on is that for the first time in human history, uh, we've got the tools um, so that everyone in the world can truly have access to high quality learning resources and research resources for the marginal cost of zero. And I'll talk about why I think that's the case a little bit later. Good. Thanks, Cable. Really delighted to have you here as well. And John. Hi. I'm John Katzman. I founded the Princeton Review and ran it for many years. And then I founded Tutor, uh, which partners with USC, Georgetown, and some other great universities to create online graduate programs. Uh, and uh, more recently, I've been working on a company called Noodle, which is hoping to be Google for Education. So I'm sort of a serial entrepreneur in the space. Um, I think it is an incredible time for tech and education, uh, really being driven by two things. Uh, one, uh, improvements in technology and bandwidth and the comfort people have with technology uh, is allowing a lot of the social interactions that you really have to be in a classroom to get. Um, uh, until pretty recently. And second, just uh, the steadily rising cost of both K-12 and higher education uh, has really pretty much hit the wall. We can't sustain continued increases in budget by uh, two or three points over inflation every year. And, uh, and so people are looking for ways to use technology to drive down the cost of education even as, they, as it improves education. Okay, terrific. As you can tell, we're going to have lots to talk about. 
So what I'd like to do is I'll direct questions to each of you um, during the next hour, and I'll direct it to a specific individual. And then the, uh, the others of you on the panel, if you would like to respond to that same question, just raise your hand. So you'll see in the participant window there are some icons. The third one over is a hand, raise hand. So I'm going to start by asking Chris a question. And then if anybody else would like to address it, please do uh, feel free to raise your hand. So Chris, I'm interested in uh, something that, I, that it feels very noticeable to me with uh, Web 2.0 technologies. It feels as though the technologies drive cultural changes, and the cultural changes drive expectations for education. And maybe pedagogy kind of gets left out of that mix for the general populace. Is that a fair way to look at what's happening, or is there nuance here that, that uh, needs to be described? Well, I think you're absolutely right that uh, the participation of people in social media and the opportunity on the web not only to hear from others but to publish yourself are, are dramatically changing how people know things and how people outside of academic settings learn things. And of course, once you've got new ways of knowing and learning outside of classrooms, you start to wonder, well, would some of these be powerful inside of classrooms? Or in extreme cases, could they substitute for a lot of the more traditional academic learning in classrooms? So I think there's a debate that's going on. And it isn't always a debate between people who use a lot of the Internet and web technologies and, and so are for change in education and people who don't use a lot of those technologies and are against change. I think it's more complicated than that because some of the people who are very active in learning and knowing in new ways in their own lives when it comes to their teaching don't want to change. I see that with a lot of my colleagues at Harvard who are use a lot of new technologies in their own research and yet they ban them from their classrooms. So the complicated topic to me is how we get people to see that what's good for learning is good for learning, whether it's formal or informal. And it feels like you're bringing up that sort of important parallel between how students learn and how educators learn, and that these are you know, sort of the same story. So it looks like we've got a hand raised, but I'm not seeing who that is. Is it Cable? Is that you, Cable? Did you want to respond? It is. So, so your question was, does tech drive cultural changes and does that drive educational expectations? And it got me thinking, I was just uh, listening to Chris Anderson's book, Free. If you haven't read it, it's quite good. And in it, he talks about this very idea, uh, not just about education, but about every market that deals with digital stuff. So. What Chris says, and these are quotes from him, he says, ideas can propagate without limit and without costs. Ideas are the ultimate abundance economy that propagate at zero cost, and you can't charge scarcity prices in an abundance market. And so I think one of the things that we have to think about when we think about this question is that the students that are coming to universities today and will come to them forevermore are growing up as digital natives. They're growing up with access to information that for them, for all intents and purposes, has been free, both uh, both gratis free, no cost, but also Libre. So they've had 
uh, rights, or maybe they violated those rights through copyright, but they've been able to modify and make changes to things. And so they're, the students um, have an expectation that uh, that things that the technology certainly drives the pedagogy and the environments that they'll that they're in. The the flip side of that is I actually where I was driving from was meeting with the community colleges in Oregon, and I was meeting with all the presidents and their challenges. Uh, and these were their words, not mine. But that their faculty are in their 50s and 60s and did not grow up with the internet and uh, fundamentally do not um, understand a lot of the affordances of net digital networked technologies. And so it goes back to Chris's point, there's a, a huge professional development need to, to bridge this gap. Thanks, Cable. So I'm going to uh, switch here because I want to be able to bring up a particular video. And I want to bring up Chris's video. Chris, am I right in thinking that those are children's drawings on the wall behind you? Well, your mic is off. Chris, we can't hear you with your mic, unfortunately. I turn your mic on. I have a little daughter who does artwork for me, and I'm working from home rather than my office, so that's why you see these decorations on the wall. I'm actually really glad to see them, and I'll, let me use that as kind of a segue. So, John, it feels to me like the technologies of the web uh, do two things if not more, but two that we could talk about right now sort of really, really well. One is scale and one is social. So what we're seeing on the wall behind Chris is very much the relationship social intimacy. What we're seeing, say, in the MOOCs is scale. Um, uh, do we overvalue scale when we think about technology right now because it's easier to think about and do we neglect the potential for social? And, and maybe how has your work addressed that? I think about scale this way. If, if, if I commission a book, I might find someone to write it for thirty or $50,000. Pretty good book. Um, creating a video game is probably more like a, a $20 million exercise, depending on the sophistication of the game. And a, and a movie might be, might be $60 plus million. Um, how we create an online course. So think about. Uh, the asynchronous materials in a course, and any good university course should have some mix of asynchronous and, and live conversation involving faculty and, and, and students. If we can spend $100,000 to develop really good instructional materials for that course, we need about, and let's say that it's uh, uh, $50,000 a year thereafter to maintain that course and, 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 uh, and continue to improve it. So let's call it $75,000 a year steady state if we amortize the first 100. Well, if we have 1,000 students a year taking that course, that's pretty much a rounding error. We're not worried about it at all. It's 75 bucks a kid, which is not so different from a textbook. And uh, on the other hand, if we have 50 kids, it's a disaster. Right? That we, we cannot, you cannot sustain a model of creating high quality materials in a very small scale. At 10,000 kids, yeah, you can drive down the cost further, but I think you are creating the courses and starting down another side of the curve towards, um, towards a one-size-fits-all model that sort of failed in K-12 and would fail in higher ed. So my feeling is that 
what you're looking at is much more curved than a uh, than a line. And our job is to have enough students taking a, taking any given course that we can afford to build something great but agile, that we can change every year, that we can feel comfortable, that we can address this particular audience versus another. John, I can't tell if your audio cut out if you were done. I was I was done. Okay, good. Thank you for that. So, so Cable, you put a link in the chat there uh, from a post from George Siemens. So what point is he making and what point might you make here? Yeah, so the point, so George and I agree on this particular point, um, which really goes to the, the cost discussions that were going on before, which is that when, well, so, so first, uh, let me just, a little bit of, let's start at the same point here. So <laughs> educational resources today are born digital, right? We build them digitally, and digital things have unique characteristics. The there are still costs of production and maintenance of digital things, uh, but the marginal cost of sharing a digital resource, I mean, leave intellectual property aside for a minute, but the marginal cost of sharing something that's digital is, for all intents and purposes, zero. And why is that? Because storage, because the cloud computing has fallen to zero, because replication of digital things costs nothing, and because distribution over the Internet is not zero, but it's very, very close to zero, and so it might as well be zero. So, so once something's created, yeah, you've got to maintain it but you can share it for free. So take Carnegie Mellon, since we've got Carnegie Mellon on. They've got the Open Learning Initiative, and they spend boatloads of money, $400,000 building each one of those courses, but then once they're built, they can share them with everybody in the world for, for zero. Right? So what George is getting at in this post is that uh, in the, if you look at the link, you'll see a, a chart of Encarta, right? So when Microsoft came out with Encarta, it was supposed to be the state-of-the-art encyclopedia. They charged a 1000 bucks for it. After a few years, because of things like Wikipedia, um, the idea of an encyclopedia, because it was digital, it was online, and people were willing to share knowledge, fell to zero, because that's the natural cost of information when people are willing to share it. So George's point is, if something is digital and it can go to zero, it will go to zero. And that's also Chris Anderson's point in his book, Free. Um, and that is, that's happening right now with, with courseware. It's happening with... Uh, textbooks, where where it will not happen is where there are things that you need people to do that computers can't do, and you can't replicate them for the cost of zero. And that's and that's the quote that I pasted in here from George. There's a whole bunch of activities that universities and colleges engage in that are extremely high value that people will continue to pay for, but content is not one of them. So Chris has his hand raised, and we'll go to Chris. But John, I want to give you a chance to kind of come back to that from the commercial angle. So we'll I, go ahead. I was just about to raise my hand. Um, crappy content is free. Uh, we can shovel a lot of things, and uh, and certain kinds of good content can be free. And Wikipedia certainly is excellent, but the vast majority of free content isn't very good. And, uh, and when you talk about rich media, when you talk about creating simulations and animations, things that are collaborative, things that are, things that are excellent, and, and in a changing world, and you're not teaching the same things you were teaching in 1985. Um, and so every year, the effort to continue to evolve them, I'm just skeptical that, uh, that this goes to zero. It goes to a low number. 
and it, and, it, and it doesn't become a driver of the cost of higher education, to be sure. Um, but I see no reason it should go to zero, and I see no reason it will, if you believe in quality. And, and not just on the interactive side, not just on the professor and the encouragement and everything else, but the quality of online asynchronous materials can be so good and with a reasonable number of students can be inexpensive enough that, uh, that yeah, it's not free, but it's fine. Chris, did you want to weigh in? Well, one of the things that we're seeing now that bears on the points that Cable and John are making, and also the quote by Siemens, is the emergence of these massively open online courses, the MOOCs, and the coalitions of universities. So MIT, Harvard, and Berkeley have edX. Stanford has put a much larger group of universities together. And they're going to offer online experiences that basically don't have that faculty member at the center. They have content. They have some sort of presentational learning environment, but then students are left to make sense out of it themselves. And that raises some really interesting questions about what kinds of relatively low-cost support we can provide that don't involve experts, but do involve peers not sharing ignorance, but sharing what they know and making sense out of the materials. I think there's going to be some very interesting experiments in the different MOOCs that different faculty put together. And I'm hoping that in the research that comes out of that, we'll get some sense of how far most people can get under different conditions in terms of instruction and in terms of the costs associated with instruction. I think that was one of the things I really liked about the Harvard, MIT, then Berkeley announcement, which was um, these MOOCs are really interesting. We, we want to start doing them, but we want to study where the learning takes place. And that, for me, was a, maybe a, at, the, at the core of the question, the, the scale and the relationships. And, and Stanford can scale courses to 100,000, but is that uh, do you get the kind of learning that you get when the social media is used to build uh, kind of relationships for learning? I want to give Drew a chance to kind of weigh in here because I'm interested in, in kind of your take on this, Drew, especially being, again, at another uh, educational institution, um, and especially because I haven't read this article that you put in the post, but open as in door, open as in heart. Feels feels like heart begins to take some prominence in some cases over profit. Yeah, what I like about that post is just sort of the emphasis on uh, the open as in door ideas. You know, you're more than welcome to just take a look, hang out, check things out. Everything's sort of free as in gratis. And open as in heart is there's a community here that will engage with you and support you and like get you involved, like reach out to you. And I thought that was an interesting distinction because sometimes at scale, I think um, Alice Waters has been doing some really interesting posts at her uh, Hack Education blog on trying to take some of these MOOCs or some of these classes offered from my Coursera or Udacity, where she finds herself just slowly dropping out eventually. And she's like, well, I'm busy, and I get this and that. But then she's done some much more thoughtful analysis in terms of just her motivations and also just the course's uh, strengths and failings. And so I thought that kind of got at something around how 
there's all this potential there, and it's interesting listening to um, Chris and John's comments uh, around how it's growing to scale. But then there's that flip side of I saw God, I'm going to not be able to cite this, but I read recently an interesting article about how with the, the rise of these educational initiatives like edX and everything, it's going to open up opportunities for students across you know classes, worlds, cultures to just get the educational opportunities. But at the same time, going to Harvard and having that face-to-face -face is going to become even more valuable for a certain set of uh, students. And so there's like that tension there, what the technologies enable, um, but also what, like I've, I think in some ways some universities are really at risk right now. Um, and it's going to be radically rearranged. And I think in some ways other universities, their cachet is going to carry them forward. And so that that's going to be fascinating to see. And I think kind of related to this discussion, uh, somewhat tangentially, is the whole gamification movement, even though that term <laughs> makes me vomit. Uh, but the whole idea of just adding a layer of uh, award structures or achievements to any type of experience can get people more motivated. And I think a lot of like Khan Academy is starting to explore that idea and a lot of others like how do you use this type of design principle um, which is problematic in some respects, but in some ways it really does get people motivated to to engage um, and you, you, know, you give them these rewards to do just that and they like go for the next badge or they go for the more points so they level up. So I want to say uh, game-based or gamification uh, education for, for a little bit later, but now I, I, I want to go back and bring uh, sort of John back into this and, and Chris as well. So one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the technologies that have had some of the most significant influence for connecting educators, connecting, I guess connecting educators and connecting students, so let's say connected education, have been social technologies that were not developed for the classroom but that get adopted because they've solved a very human need and get brought into the education sphere. And it's easy to think about profitability when you think about scale, but it's harder to think about profitability when it's about building relationships. And, and Nang maybe is a great example of that, the difficulty they had in actually finding a feasible financial model. So starting with you, Chris, is, is there value in looking at this trend of non-educational applications or programs being brought into education? And is there an inherent difficulty in um, having commercial entities providing these who are struggling to figure out how to how to make a living doing so? Well, I think a lot of it depends on what is the experience that, in this case, the teacher seeking professional development is looking for. If you're looking primarily for an experience where you can reach out to peers who are wearing the same shoes that you are, and get some quick insights from them, get some sympathy from them, get some support from them, then um, that doesn't have to be anything but free um, because the participants themselves are providing the value. And, and social media work very well for that, and those are free as well. So providing some kind of service that helps people link together some kind of blended or online learning community that, that's not going to have much of a business model connected with it, nor should it. On the other hand, um, 
beyond sympathy, beyond support, beyond quick ideas, teachers often really need depth advice and modeling and understanding. And one of the things that we do a lot of at Harvard, whether it's the law school, the business school, the med school, or the ed school, is cases. And the power of a grounded case where, yes, the participants are very active in analyzing the case, but and they're coming in from different perspectives, and the combination of those perspectives adds value. But the case itself adds value if it's constructed well. And the case teacher who knows how to get the participants to build something together that synthesizes the insights, that adds value too. So I think where the potential business model comes is not just from connecting people together, but connecting people together where you have a powerful experience that you can provide them that they're not going to spontaneously generate on their own that's targeted to a specific need that they have in their practice where they can go back and use this and in a way that helps them succeed as teachers. John, we may have lost you for a minute there because I nope, I'm here. Out, out back. But uh, you know, how how do you respond to this? A lot of these technologies are coming from the commercial world. Uh, they're having there are some struggles in finding business models for the relationship-based technologies. Um, are there answers from your side? I think uh, at Twitter we've we've adopted either existing commercial technologies or, or mirrored them, created interfaces very much like Facebook, for example. Um, the fact is, if you, if you think about, and, and this is an observation, I guess, by Joe Cohn at Lore, um, but it's really worked for me that 20, 30 years ago, all of the good software was stuff you used at the office, and uh, ERP software and, and Adobe Illustrator. And then you'd get home and use KidPix. You know, uh, the home software was terrible. And uh, and now it's reversed. Everything you use every day is far more sophisticated than anything uh, either at the corporate level uh, in ERP software or uh, student information systems, learning management systems. All of the things created for large institutions, they just move too slowly and they're falling farther and farther behind uh, more commercial stuff. So to some degree, it's it's reasonable to expect that the cutting edge, the things that really get into your head, that really facilitate communication, are going to come from the regular world, not from any one uh, sector like, like education. So Drew, from your perspective, um, how are you seeing this? We did a session last night on five years of Ning and Ning's impact on connecting educators and the fact that there really hasn't grown up any kind of an alternative um, tuning that, that performs the same function. ELG exists, but there hasn't been whatever investments needed to have that be a platform. How do we think about some of these technologies um, getting provided uh, in ways that are non-commercial? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a tricky one, because one of the things, like, like you cited with Ning, one of the the things that I worry about is we've done some work with MacArthur um, around the MacArthur Foundation around what we're calling working examples and trying to use it as a website so similar to like what Chris was saying about cases. We're using this idea of sort of co-oping the term or re reworking the term worked examples into a working example that a community does together. 
um, trying to prove out digital media learning and gay-based learning concepts um, in this sort of nascent field. Uh, one of my concerns throughout the project has been, is it going to be yet another website that nobody uses? Uh, which is like a Ning slowly started phasing. And I remember Second Life was huge for a while there. And now Second Life is scary <laughs> on some levels. And so it's tricky. I've seen more success academically. Oh, this is broad, so maybe I'm not can't back it 100%, but I've seen a lot of success in things like academics who form a guild in World of Warcraft and are still doing it three years later because there's this weird conjoining of their interest in studying some sort of uh, factors that are happening within the world, but they're also colleagues working in the same field and they enjoy uh, WoW as an experience, and so that, like those three intersections enable them to continuously leverage the technology across years, um, where it's so easy, as we've you sort of started the conversation, so much is developing so quickly. I mean, once upon a time, it was Friendster, then it was MySpace, and now it's Facebook, and something's going to be next. And like one of the, I saw a great post about a year ago, and I tell my students this, I'm like, you should have your own website. Um, because that's something you'll always be able to control and then be very strategic about, you know, Facebook. Everybody's on Facebook, yay. Um, but should you be on LinkedIn? Because that's much more professional for focus. And so it's always the technology's role so much it's hard to keep up. Um, and like we were saying earlier about how that then shapes culture, it definitely feels fast forward right now in terms of how things are developing and what's coming out and reactions. I have many a colleague who are swearing off social media and technology and really trying to get back to, well, I guess we could say old school um, networking, where they try to do it face-to-face -face and through um, letter writing. But there's such a huge convenience about the technology that does allow us to scale into these wonderful projects. Um, I'd be curious, a lot of people are talking about a GitHub for education, so like a repository on online, because GitHub's become a great repository for programming and projects. And could you do something similar with something for education, and also maybe something like Kickstarter for education, um, where it helps not only just find projects, but fund projects that might need a little support, and the community thinks they have value. Um, so I think. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say I'm worried that we could. We could have this part of the conversation all day, which is this sort of the, what appears to be a little bit of a dilemma. But I want to move to specific technologies that you see playing a role in connecting education, connected education, uh, and give you each a chance to kind of talk about what those are and, and drill down on them a little. And I'm going to start in a weird place, which is I want to start with cable, because I think uh, openness in this case uh, feels to me like it can be categorized either as a technology or the outgrowth of certain technologies, but deserves its sort of own focus. So Cable, how important do you think openness is and as, a, as something that will get adopted? Um, it, uh, what hurdles does it face in adoption and what are the potential upsides if we can do a good job of getting it adopted? I like that you said we're going to start in a weird place. We're going to start with Cable. I appreciate that. <laughs> So um, so I, I dropped a lot of this in the chat uh, before with some links, but I'll, I'll repeat a little bit. So the, not only 
is the world changing because of the technology and that's driving faculty and students to think about you know, pedagogy and the learning environment in new ways, but one important point that we haven't talked about is that governments are getting involved in this conversation today in a way that they never have before. So, uh, you know, I, I think the general open response to your question is that connecting using technologies is great and is going to continue, and that's fabulous in a lot of ways. But connecting and sharing educational resources among educators is even better. And if the purpose of education is to share knowledge and connect with learners and other academics, then openly licensing one's educational resources or one's research makes a lot of sense. So that is, if you put a Creative Commons license in your course or your textbook or your video, then anyone can reuse, revise, remix, and redistribute your work, and then they can modify it and use it in their own learning environment. So, so the government piece of this, which is really fascinating, is that because governments now understand the Internet better than they did five years ago, because they understand somewhat the unique affordances and characteristics of digital things, because they're starting to understand open licensing, they're asking return on investment questions for the public dollars that they spend on education and on research. And so, you know, we're all familiar with the NIH, National Institutes of Health, open access policy that's been around for a while, which is a gratis policy that says the public that paid for this research within 12 months of publication should have free access to it. Not open access, but free access. Um, uh, the country of Brazil is now has legislation that says anything that's built with federal funds is going to have a Creative Commons license on it. Not just educational works, but anything built with public monies. And, the, the, and Poland is doing the same thing with K-12 textbooks. California is about to put $25 million in and issue RFPs for their 50 highest enrolled textbooks in community colleges. All those books will be owned by the state of California because the state paid for them. The people of California paid for them. And then there will be a Creative Commons attribution license on all 50 books. So why are these governments doing this? Why are they getting involved? And the argument is not that governments want to get in the business of building textbooks or building courses, et cetera. It's only that the argument is when governments are making investments in educational resources or in research, which they do to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars every year, um, that when those public funds are used, that the public that paid for it should have access. And one of the links I put in is UNESCO just last month had a big meeting. They invited 195 nations, including the United States, to Paris, and they sat down and wrestled with these topics, all these topics we're talking about. And they, in the end, signed something called the Paris OER Declaration, which says many things about supporting open resources, but it also says when they spend public money on education and on research, that those things should be openly licensed, and that's the direction they're moving. So does open have a role to play? Yes, even if governments weren't involved, it absolutely has an op a role to play because when things are openly licensed, we can share them legally and freely with each other without friction. And in, in the academy, that's critical. Uh, is this coming at us anyway? Yes, it is. It's not going to be. It's not going to be long before every single grant that anybody in the United States or any other country, if you apply to, the, to your government for a grant and it's public funds, there's going to be a nice little requirement on those grants that says, you may take this money, whatever you build, you own the copyright, you can own the patents to what you build, et cetera. However, there will also be an open license on it because the people that paid for these 
taxpayer dollars to be used for whatever you're building, you'll share with them at no cost, and you'll give them the legal rights to modify. Okay, I I love that pitch, uh, Chris. You had a nice you had a guest there who's disappeared. I'm sorry, that's the case, but I wanted you to go next. So, uh, Chris, from your perspective, what what's really on the horizon if we use the the um, you know, the horizon report is kind of the the, the idea here. What, what do you see on the horizon that we really should be paying attention to in terms of new technologies and connected education? Well, I think I and others are very interested in the potential of mobile learning for professional education um, because one thing that all educators report is it's difficult to find the time for professional development. And yet, we do have small chunks of time standing in a grocery line or uh, waiting in some other kind of a setting, a doctor's office. So the question about what can you learn in relatively small chunks of time as opposed to an intense hour-long or several-hour-long professional development experiences, and what can you learn on something that has the form factor of uh, a mobile phone or a small mobile device? rather than a big laptop or workstation. Those are things that people are still trying to sort out. I do some work with EDC, which is a nonprofit in Waltham, Massachusetts, near Harvard. Uh, they have educational technology leaders online, which does a lot of sophisticated online work with uh, educators who want to develop distance learning professional development. And um, now we're looking at mobile, because mobile is a very interesting delivery platform. I co-host a conference every fall in Washington, D.C. for Qualcomm um, on wireless ed tech and all the different kinds of mobile learning that are enabled. I'll type the URL for that conference into the chat area. And a lot of the people that are part of the conference are reporting on different kinds of mobile education or blended mobile and non-mobile education for teachers. So I think this is a powerful medium. It's one that's not well understood. It's one that has its limits and its strengths. And it's exciting to look at what might develop. So that's an intriguing description uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which is uh, the mobile device for me is an incredible learning tool, but it, it isn't discrete small chunks of time. It's actually large chunks of time. The value to me in the mobile is having in a small form factor access to everything that I would be interested in, and so I can make choices very easily as to where to spend my time. And I'm also I also think there's a connection you you probably would make, um, but didn't, which is the ability that mobile is giving us to connect with others, um, and certainly we we can come back to that. Um, I want to save Drew for last here for a reason in terms of these new technologies, but John. What are you seeing? Um, what, what, maybe you have a little bit of a different lens. Are there technologies you see coming that will really shape uh, how um, education becomes more connected? Um, and perhaps I'm a little biased because I'm having trouble with the video today. I think the weak link right now in uh, distance learning and in online education is still, you know, how compelling can we make the experience of video conferencing and. Uh, as bandwidth gets better, as the tools get better, especially audio, um, I think I think you're just going to have this transformative moment where you can have 
every bit the quality of the discussion online with the same kind of visceral reactions to people's faces and the nuances that you, that you get in the classroom uh, on your screen. And uh, that um, that will be transformative. I, I just want to say to, to some other points Chris and others made around uh, uh, and Cable made around uh, costs. I don't want to, to come across as the for-profit guy, but um, I think I think free might be the enemy of good in the way the perfect is the enemy of good. That 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 um, what we want to do in education is drive down the cost. We want to find productivity savings and slowly move away from the precipice of unaffordable education. I think. The notion of chasing after free content, of saying, for instance, when you develop something that now uh, you're sharing it with everyone, um, there's going to be an awful lot of shovelware. And creating robust marketplaces where somebody says, yeah, I, I actually created something really good, and I spent some time and energy on it and, and, and invested in it, and I'm going to charge a buck a student. Um, I think that's going to be part of this marketplace and a really critical part of the marketplace. So, um, do I see a very modular world? Do I see marketplaces evolving? Absolutely. Do I see free content as part of that marketplace? Absolutely. But in the same way, we decide to use cable television instead of antennas just for that little extra bit of content and a little bit of extra quality because it's just not that huge an expense in our lives. I think there's a place for paid content and, uh, and for the people who want to make their living creating good content, uh, whether uh, authors or, uh, or publishers. I love this perspective, John. I don't mind you being the, the for-profit guy. Uh, uh, Drew, I want to come back to you because I'm interested in whether or not we're potentially conflating different stories that can stay separate. Right? So there's content, there's free content, there's paid content, and then there's conversation. And so what, the one lens of looking at these technologies as providing content gets you into this discussion of free or not paid, or free or paid. But another way of looking at these technologies is that it's reminding us of the value of the, our humanity, the stories we tell, the conversations we have with each other. Are these actually just sort of different ways? Are they separate stories that can live together, and we're just going to have, we're just going to have a better, fuller picture than we had before? Oh, wow. I would, my instinct is to say yes. Um, just from, like, like one of the things that you often hear, you know, it's a truism or axiom, and just like content is king. And like John was just saying, sometimes free is the, the, the bane of good. Um, although there's that general aphorism that, you know, 90% of everything's crap. <laughs> And we're just we have a huger ninety percent now with the internet. Uh, I think that's true of everything, cat videos included. Um, that said, one of the things that we found really interesting is not only is like how important content is in developing that. So anytime you're using technology or trying to tell like a story or craft an experience, you want to engage with the people who understand the the design, who understand the subject matter, who understand the um, instructional goals, but then context is so important. Uh, a great, some great work is Reed Stevens has done some really great work looking at how learning in off-the-shelf video games happens, just how 
kids and their families learn how to play games just when they're in their living rooms. And he kind of the title of his paper is "In Game, In Room, and In World," um, and that, that the learning happens in those three different contexts. Like you learn in the game, but often a lot of the learning happens in the room as you're playing with your friends, and that can often translate into things that go out into the world. But those three contexts aren't naturally conjoined. Um, and I thought it was an interesting uh, finding because a lot of times when we talk about games in education, one of the, a quick uh, sort of knee-jerk reaction we get some from like doubters or people who are worried about this are, well, games can teach us stuff. What does Grand Theft Auto teach? A game that enables you to sleep with a hooker, kill her, and take your money back. You know, what is that teaching kids that play that game? Um, and he he didn't use that as an example of his study. But I think related to what he's sort of showing is that uh, games in and of themselves need remediation around them. They need that context in order for learning to really happen and stick so that it does travel from something that's happening in game into something where you're having discussions in room that then can happen into uh, realities that you have in your in world and using his terminology. And so I think that's really interesting in terms of like you're saying, these conversations that happen. I think those conversations will happen because it's it's the stories and the way we have it. In some ways, when I talk to teachers, that's what makes them even more important than ever. Is there all these bells and whistles you can get with so much technology out there now um, that students need guides more than ever to help sort of uh, ascertain and set the, the right bar for students to achieve, and a, a teachers do that so well. Um, and a, ga a game can do it kind of, or you know, some technology can do it kind of. They can kind of track your progress and hit you with some remedial content. But uh, a, a teacher becomes even more important to help set the context of how things interrelate, how things transfer. Okay, so we've got, looks like John and Cable both want to weigh in here. I want to do that. I do want to talk about games to kind of finish up. Our formal hour will finish at the top of the hour. Then what will happen is uh, we'll excuse our guests. If any of the panelists want to say, you're more than welcome to. But out of respect for you, we want to give you an option to, to to complete your responsibility at the top of the hour. But then we will have an, an, a half an hour of open mic, kind of an opportunity for those who are participating here to uh, talk about these uh, issues as well. Um, OK. so. Uh, and the hands, hands have gone down, so maybe you didn't have responses. So, so let's look at gaming. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a book called Crucial Conversations that, that uh, was from a, a, a group that then published another book called Change Anything. And in that book, they talk about how change um, is more likely to take place when um, it involves multiple levels of impact on an individual, from their personal abilities and motivation to social motivation and social help to sort of structural changes. And I read that book and I thought, wow, this describes gaming. Gaming impacts us at so many levels. What are good lessons from your perspectives to take from gaming as we think about education? And, and Chris, can I start with you? You can. And um, it, it's interesting. I don't build games deliberately. I build. Uh, immersive authentic simulations that are game-like. That is, they draw on many of the powerful motivational ideas in games, but they're not themselves games because 
sometimes games distort the model that you're trying to teach. Not everything in life can be modeled well by a game. But it is important to make learning experiences motivating. So I, I would put myself in the middle of a dichotomy on games between people who say that games are the perfect way to learn and that they can be used to teach anything, and people who say that games are completely frivolous and a terrible way to learn and undercutting all of the values that we want kids to have. I think some of the time a game is the right approach to learning. And I do think that people learn a lot of things when they play a game, not always what the game designers think they're going to learn, and not always things that are related to academic knowledge. Um, so the troubling thing about games is it's discussed as if the medium is the innovation, which is a lot like the arguments about whether technology itself is the innovation. The innovation is always deeper content new kinds of pedagogy, greater motivation, better ways of assessing, links between learning and life. Those are the things that are powerful. And so the question is, can gaming technology create some of those things? And the answer is, I think some of the time it's the right answer, and some of the time it's not. Before we move on to Cable and John, Drew, it looks like something sparked your interest there. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on what Chris said because I completely agree. A lot of people are looking at games as this sort of solve everything, but one of the things I find fascinating, it's almost becoming misunderstood or misrepresented in terms of like it being innovative. I was talking to a reporter just last week, and they led with this question of, well, how are kids learning differently now that they can play games? And it was so wrong on so many levels. I, I, had, I had to struggle to try to give her an answer that I was hoping that she could then use in her article um, because it was just I was trying to just unpack the misunderstanding of well, kids aren't necessarily learning differently, but we understand learning a lot of levels. And oh my God! <laughs> um, so I totally agree with Chris there, and I think you know to, to just draw it up really quickly so we can get on the cable and is just that. Games don't solve, like we really do preach around here how games are good at some things and not everything. And so it's always about what are your goals and what do you hope to do. It's just sort of like good design practice in general. And sometimes games are great and sometimes it's not the right thing to do at all. So I don't want to presuppose, Gable and John, that you even have opinions on this. But if either of you do, I'd love to hear from you uh, on this. John? Well, two quick notes. One is there are a lot of lessons of games, and most of them have to do with the seriousness of intent that we're going to measure how this gets in kids' heads. We're going to make an effort to build pedagogical materials that actually work, um, as opposed to we're just going to teach it the same way every time, and, uh, and you're either going to learn it or you're not, and it's your problem if you don't. At the same time, I think there is a real question of uh, rigor and that, that learning is hard. Um, an article in the Times the other day that we should stop teaching algebra because algebra is hard and, and kids are having trouble learning it as opposed to just we're teaching it wrong. Um, you know, it's just let's, let's not try to teach things that, that are not immediately useful in the workforce and that, uh, and that are difficult. Uh, so I don't think that 
that school should be a game, it's not only about having fun, but there is an intent to uh, be effective, that we can learn a lot uh, from the game guys. Abel, you're welcome to weigh in or pass. I, I have no idea of how deeply you've thought about this. Uh, I'll leave just, just briefly. Um, I dropped a link in the chat window to, uh, to, to James Paul Gee's book on this, uh, which is old now, but still a very good read. And, you know, when I, when I read this book about games and learning and, and literacies, what struck me and made me laugh was that the gaming industry uh, understands and uses learning theories much better than education does. And uh, a lot of the aspects of how games keep people, especially kids, motivated um, are lessons that come right out of uh, learning theory, learning theory science that, um, that most educators don't understand and don't use. And so some of the basic things like the ability to uh, to experiment with very low risk and have the ability to reset and try again. So you're encouraged to fail quickly and fail often um, and to have very low uh, repercussions for failure. And in fact, it's not seen as failure, it's seen as learning. That's not an idea that we tend to incorporate uh, into a lot of our classrooms. We should, but we don't. Uh, another thing that they're quite good at is uh, Vygotsky's Zone of Proximal Development, where they keep the game, the, the difficulty of the game, just beyond what is you're capable of doing, um, but not so much that you get frustrated. And in a lot of games, um, the, and this has been around for years, but they actually will send in uh, helps. Uh, in the same way Carnegie Mellon's Open Learning Initiative courses do, but the games, you know, send in a little fairy or uh, some character to come in and say, I'm here to help you. Here's a little video on how to solve this complex problem. Um, I've got a brother who struggles terribly uh, with traditional education uh, rules and assessments, um, but uh, simultaneously, or not simultaneously, but he'll go home and he will open up three laptops in front of him. And the reason he's got three laptops open is he's playing some online game on the Xbox 360 network. And he's got the laptops open because he's in chat rooms solving problems with people around the world about the game that he can't solve on his own. And five of the people speak different languages. And so he's running the chat streams through Google Translate in real time. So, and I've tried to talk to my brother to say, do you realize this skill set that you have to communicate, network, uh, work essentially in an international team to solve what are truly complex problems that are beyond your capabilities, and that this truly would be a set of skills useful to many businesses if you'll just go finish your bachelor's degree. Uh, but he, it's not syncing up for him. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for education to learn from games and to partner with makers of games that are spending enough money uh, to build games that are truly attractive to kids. And then how do we get, you know, to um, the point about rigor, how do we weave in uh, the actual curriculum and the rigor and the importance of learning uh, that we truly wish to assess and ultimately give credit for? Okay. Hey, that was terrific. We are at the top of the hour. As a courtesy to you and out of respect, uh, we're going to shift gears here. I'm going to clap for you, the panelists here. I'm going to the smiley face in the purchase window, and then I go down to applause. Thank you so much for coming on. 
uh, Drew and John, really nice to meet you both and to hear from both of you. Chris and Cable, uh, great to talk to you again. And you're all certainly welcome to stay, but uh, no one will feel badly if you move on. And Chris, maybe you were clapping, but if you raise your hand and want to talk, please feel free to grab the mic. Well, I just wanted to say two things. First, I'm sorry, but I do need to move on. And second, Steve, as always, you're just a fabulous moderator and very thoughtful questions. So I want to thank you for the role that you played in this and for inviting us to participate. Oh, that's nice of you. What a gentleman. Thank you so much. So what I'm going to suggest that we do with those who would like to stay, uh, and again, the audience, you're welcome to leave as well, but if you want to stick around for conversation, there were a lot of technologies we didn't talk about. Uh, we focused on the social, and we focused on the gaming, and we looked at the difference between sort of commercial and non-commercial uh, technologies that are that are being implemented. But we we didn't, and we talked about mobile, but we didn't really talk about uh, tablets. Um, I guess that would be in the same category, cloud computing. And I'm looking at the list here from uh, the Horizon Report. Um, learning analytics. We didn't talk about learning analytics. So if those are things that you would like to discuss or you have anything else that you would like to talk about, I'm going to give everybody microphone privileges. And the way that this works is that you may just grab the mic. That's clicking on the talk button at the top left. Uh, you're also welcome to put a note in the chat. And uh, let's just find out if there are things that you were hoping we would cover that we didn't or if you have thoughts that you wanted to make uh, available to everybody else. There's a competing session right now as well, so please don't feel badly if you want to go to that. It's the directors of the Office of Educational Technology uh, who are starting right at this moment in another room from Connected Educator Month. Okay, here's a question. At ISTE, a theme was not about one-to-one -one environments, but many devices for each student. Any ideas? Uh, I'm interested in how others would respond to this. Um, I know that I carry multiple devices. Uh, I suck up IP addresses at whatever conference I'm at. I'm guilty of that. Um, other other thoughts? Uh, go ahead, Cable. Well, so um, you know, as as we are working with K-12 institutions around the world, uh, K-12 in particular, as they're so part of the analysis of should they use open stuff or not is to follow the existing flows of money. So I put this in the chat window, but I'll use my own state as an example. Our, my state spends $130 million a year buying textbooks, and what we get for that are on average textbooks that are 10 years out of date, and they're in paper only. Um, and that's, most people would agree that's not a very good deal we're getting. And so, and the reason they cost, the reason we spend that much money and have textbooks that are 10 years out of date is that the textbooks cost 150 bucks a pop, and then we have to keep them for 10 years, and then we can buy the next book. Every time the Seattle School District buys one book, it costs them about $6 million. So what the districts are starting to do as far as one-to-one -one devices is they're, they're asking, so if we, instead of doing that, which that model is not working for us at all, but we're still spending $130 million on a model that's not working, should we instead uh, adopt, build, put up money to RFP for open textbooks and so that our, we're not spending $130 million anymore on, on textbooks that are 10 years out of date, but maybe we spend $50 million a year uh, building and maintaining open textbooks or adopting other people's open textbooks 
Uh, and then let's spend the other 60, 70 million a year buying laptops for every kid or buying iPads for every kid or Kindles for every kid or whatever it is so that these open textbooks we've got and many, many other educational resources can be on this device. Every kid's got one. There's no digital divide because we're giving it to them when they come to the public school. So that's the conversation that we're having right now with, with K-12. They're looking to not get more money, but stop being inefficient with old business models that don't work for them and never did work for them. But now they've got options, and they're going to use those savings to plow it back into one-to-one -one devices. I'm really glad you were on this panel. I know it's not necessarily a natural fit, but you know, part of what you brought to this conversation is a is a an understanding of a place in which money is currently being spent. There's an incentive to spend it better, and that the solution is noticeably better. Almost every example that I can think of of technologies that have been created for education by educational institutions end up not getting traction or not doing a very good job. I'm thinking of the large social network for educators in Australia, um, you know, versus you know something like Moodle where it's an independent project that then uh, organizations contribute to but sort of lives outside of necessarily institutional funding. Um, is, are there lessons there for us? Because your story is so compelling. Are there lessons from what? Well, in terms of thinking about the actual investment in technologies, right? So uh, Ning exists as a platform for connecting educators. It's a commercial product. If they change their licensing, which they have done, you know, there's really nothing you can do. We haven't been able to create, or no one has created a good platform for social networking educators within the educational community that was funded by state or, or uh, federal, state or federal government. I'm intrigued that you've got such a great example of how that funding is going to, to be of good effect, but it's, it's obviously not in software, although it sounds like that story moves in that direction. So I'm just wondering if it's a way to make a connection between your good success stories and, and what seems to be a lack of good forward movement on, um, on the other side. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I guess, so if I, if I was, let's say I was working for a government, I'm not sure I would advise any government, honestly, to go out and build software um, or to even commission for software. And the reason I wouldn't is, I, you know, the market's simply moving so fast and the, there are so many freemium models out there around really high quality software. So, you know, at, at Creative Commons, you know, everything we do as far as documents and sharing of information is done vis-a-vis -vis Google Docs. You know, and we don't, we don't use, I mean, we all have Microsoft Office, but we don't really use it that much. Um, and, and it would have been silly for, you know, if Washington State needed something like Google Docs, you wouldn't want them to go spend a bunch of public money building it. Um, and, you know, it's, so I guess I would, I, I have more confidence that technologies will be developed and that there will be some free or very low-cost version available for people who need it, and that people who want greater features or want it faster, you know, there's all sorts of different freemium, freemium models that actually fund those, those activities. Um, this is not true of everything. The government, you know, like the Department of Education has their Enter project, which is a big open repository, and there's, there's examples where government funds software, but they're, they're rarer. Um, 
I, the follow the money argument is it, it really applies to anything that governments currently spend that relates to education and to look at how much how much money is spent, how that money flows, and are you getting a good deal for your money or is there a better way to do it? Um, so, you know, textbooks are the obvious one in K-12. In higher ed, textbooks are also funded through state and federal financial aid, so that's pretty easy money to follow. The amount of redundancy in highest enrolled courses uh, around courseware uh, is rather appalling when you follow the money. Uh, but, but the same argument would apply to, to software if governments were funding software. My experience is that they usually don't, and usually they RFP for software uh, that they want to buy. Usually they buy from the commercial sector. But I don't think I answered your question. No, it's a really difficult moment because if there is something really significant going on with the social, in the same way there's something significant going on with the openness, in the openness you've got a nice path to, um, to fund and an appropriate use that make that feel long term. In the uh, social side, you've got companies that create products that aren't for education, that will change their terms of service, and that then can very rapidly impact everybody who's using them um, because you have no control over it. So uh, I'm, I'm just trying to find if there's uh, any kind of a bridge between the two that would help inform the latter so that we could think of doing a better job. Because Ning's been around for five years. They've changed the terms of service. They've been sold. It's much harder to use than it was to use before. But there's no good alternative. It's the only real platform for that kind of social networking that's available. So I'm, um, I'm struggling. And it's not that your answer isn't a good one. It's just I think there, there may not be a good answer. Well, I think that the, um, the, the best thing that, that governments can do to support, let's use social networking software as an example. Uh, but to support software that they need for the reasons that you stated, right? Governments don't want to uh, continue to have increasing costs around their software that they use. Um, they don't want to have software go to end of life and have a forced migration. Uh, my old community college system here in Washington is going through that right now. They were on uh, Angel, Blackboard bought Angel, Blackboard's going to end of life Angel. They're being forced to move. They don't like that. It's a real drag. Um, so governments have an interest in not being forced into that situation. And governments also have an interest in many cases where they want to, you know, tweak and, and play with software and, and modify it to meet their needs. So, you know, I think what governments can do is really what uh, Brazil and many, many other countries are doing, which is to have policies that say government servers will all run on Linux because it's stable and it's free and it's going to save us, you know, half a billion dollars over the next decade. That makes sense if there's a cost argument there. Um, uh, you, they also, you know, are using uh, open document formats. Um, uh, there are intergovernmental organizations which require, you know, open technical formats. So all of these, and, and not that they're giving any money to open software projects, but they're giving credibility and they're giving a market to them. Because, of course, as we know, open source software, the good stuff, often has third-party, for-profit entities pop up around them like Red Hat Linux and others that uh, support governments in the use of those things, in the use of Moodle and the use of Linux, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's a, that's a good thing too, right? Um, but I think government's main interest is uh, high functionality at, at low cost and uh, 
stability, essentially the the absence of being forced to change. Because as we've been discussing, governments and public education changes very slowly. Uh, and when they're forced to make changes, it tends to force a lot of their resources into one place at one time where they'd rather not be spending it, and the public would rather not be spending it there. It also forces not just their money, but their focus and their attention. And frankly, uh, you know, RFPing for software or for content for that matter is not a high value activity. It's a necessary activity, but that's not where you want your best and brightest people thinking. You want them thinking uh, higher up Maslow's uh, pyramid. So uh, this is a fascinating conversation for me. No one in the audience is weighing in, so I apologize if we're not touching something you'd like to touch. But it occurs to me that the organizations, uh, the private, non-public educational organizations that build good learning software uh, um, may actually have an inherent advantage here by virtue of the fact that they can do that as part of a for-profit model. And, and I'll have to sleep on that idea and see if I still feel interested in it tomorrow. Um, but it may be that that's actually somewhere we're going to see it. Plus, also the learning management systems, where they have a, a financial incentive to do a good job with the social piece, and then get contracts for that. Um, but I'm just, I was wishing for a closer tie. You know, I realize that I'm actually moderating the Deborah Meyer keynote and need to shift my attention over to getting that room ready for her. So I apologize. I think I'm actually going to end this now, if that's okay. And Cable, you've been a prince, as you always are, for sticking around. Um, and, and folks, thanks for coming, and thanks, thanks to you, Cable. You've been terrific. Great. Thanks, Steve. Uh, congratulations on such a great event. I look forward to attending every other sessions. Take care. Okay. Thank you, and bye. Bye, folks. I'm going to go ahead and turn the recording off.